Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Eustace Kraut. I am Mariah Rose. <laughs> you, Eustace Kraut with a K. Yeah. Das is, is Deutsch. It's German. E.K. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, you know what? I'll accept it. Well, it's the truth. It's your birth name. Let that be written into the annals of the E.K. name choices. You know... I'm probably going to live longer than you, and I get to decide your tombstone. Mm-hmm. I'm going with Eustace Kraut right now. It's top top contender. You know, when you said the word probably, I didn't believe it for a second. You're very confident that you'll live longer than me. I Well, first of all, I'm a, a woman. Women live longer than men. It's our gift. Okay. One of many. Also, I'm crazy healthy. I'm drinking green juice right now. Okay. <laughs> Well, luckily, you'll have back episodes on lasergraves.com to hear the voice of, of me after I'm dead. Oh. So, there you go. Okay. There's my gift to you, everybody. <laughs> uh, welcome to Laser Graves. If this is your first time, we are a podcast about 80s-related stuff, pop culture, whatnot. Mm-hmm. If you're returning, thanks for coming back. We have a really interesting one for you this week. Yeah. And actually, I think this is the first time ever it's like a two-parter, but it's only a two-parter if you are a Patreon subscriber oh, at, our, no. at our top level. Because for our month of January time travel episode, we went back to 1975 mm-hmm. and talked about the cult midnight music classic, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We did. Which was a lot of fun. We love that movie. And this is really a continuation and a larger scope of looking at the creator of that because he went on to do other things, in particular, a very quirky film in the early 80s. Yes. So it, if you haven't, uh, we invite you to join Patreon and go check that out. If you don't want to, I think this episode will still be very, very interesting to you. We're just not going to go really into the weeds on Rocky Horror because we just did that on our Patreon episode. Been there, done that. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but we hope that you enjoy this because this is not Bob Ross or anything. This is a very interesting character that few people know about. So Yeah, he's more obscure, at least in America. I don't know. In England, he might be... Yeah, in Australia and stuff like that. I think he'd New be Zealand. better known. New Zealand. But this week, we are talking about the 1981 follow-up to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Shock Treatment, mm-hmm. and the life of its creator... Richard O'Brien. Yes. <laughs> so here we go. You need a bit of shock treatment. Get you jumping like a real life wire. Need a bit of shock treatment. So look out, mister. Don't you blow your last resistor for a mister that'll mystify ya. All right, so we're going to travel way back. Farther back even than the 80s, back to the ancient times. (laughs) Okay, I like this. In the year 1942. Okay. A bald baby boy. I'm assuming he was bald. I don't really know. I can't even imagine this person being, you know, at least... Anything but bald. At least mostly bald. A bald baby boy was born in... And I spelled it out phonetically for myself because it looks like Gloucestershire, but it's Gloucestershire. Okay, where's this? In England? Yeah, of course it's England. They have the craziest, wackiest names. Yes, we'll get to New Zealand. It it could have been Australian. (sighs) 
Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, he was born in Gloucestershire. And if I said that wrong, I it's blame Google, not me. I heard that originally his parents had uh, planned on moving to Australia, <laughs> but the flights were delayed. <laughs> All right, so our ball, little baby boy, was named not Richard O'Brien, but Richard Smith. Oh, really? Yeah. O'Brien's not his normal. No. Wow, already learning something. Yeah. So Richard Smith, and honestly, he could have gone by Dick Smith, and I think it would have worked very well for his persona, but no. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll get to the name change in a bit. I think we should also note, I think it's of great importance, actually, to note that he was born during World War II. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things, when you watch Rocky Horror Picture Show, there's uh, references to World War II and the Nazis, and it seems a little out of place, especially because I don't know how old you were when you first watched that. I think we talked about it in our Patreon. It was like, we yeah, were both teen teenagers. Years, yeah. So that would have been the 90s for us. And it was really weird to be referencing Nazis, be, even in the 70s. But then if you really, like, zoom back, you go, oh, okay, because his whole life was informed by that. Right. I mean, imagine what, what it would be like to be raised, even if it's pre-memory years mm-hmm. that he spent, the way that his parents were reacting and his culture was reacting would have had a deep and profound impact. And obviously it did. And we'll see that as he moves forward in his career. So just put it in your back pocket and think about it next time you watch or consider Richard O'Brien. But when he was 10, his dad, uh, who had been, I think, like an accountant or something, I didn't write it down, something kind of boring, he bought some land and some sheep in New Zealand and moved the whole family there. <laughs> okay, that's cool, man. I know. I wish my parents would have done that. My parents almost did. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So when I was thirteen, my parents we were living in Montana, and they had this family meeting about where we were going to go because we knew we would be moving. And it was either New Mexico or New Zealand. It was going to be a new place regardless. <laughs> it was going to be new. <laughs> and my parents ultimately decided to stay in the States to be near their parents who were aging, their mothers who were both aging. And thankfully they did because as, I met you. Yeah, as fate would have it, you were brought into my life. Yeah, so we didn't live our New Zealand dream, but he did. But you got me. I did. That's it's, a pretty good reward. And we can go to New Zealand anytime. Sure. Except right. for right now, they're not accepting Americans during COVID times. And you need money. What? Okay. I'm Just rich. Throwing that out there. <laughs> okay. In 1964, he left New Zealand. But up until then, he, he grew up, you know, when you're 10 to, you know, a young adult, those are really formative years. He was cultivating an interest in sci-fi, B-movies, going to school, riding horses, and interestingly, learning to ride horses in New Zealand helped launch his career, (laughs) or at least paved the way for show business. So he returned to England, and he was interested in getting into acting. This is where the name change comes in. Okay. There was already a known actor named Richard Smith. Well, shock. I know. It's like the most basic name. (laughs) And Johnny White. (laughs) So he went under his mother's maiden name, uh, which was O'Brien. 
And he took method acting classes and got a job as a stuntman on the show Carry On Cowboy, which I didn't look into a lot, but I'm pretty sure it's a a British imagining of cowboy life, which... (laughs) Just makes me laugh, but... I watched a lot of interviews, listened to a lot of interviews with Richard O'Brien in prep for this episode. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got... He's such an eccentric and quirky person, and we haven't even laid the groundwork Mm -mm. for that yet, but there's a reason why we're covering him. And he is... He's very articulate when he talks about his past. He's got a a beautiful voice, and he talked about what brought him over to England in particular was... He had a pretty good job as a barber, and he said he was just sick of standing around working, and he needed to do more with his life. And he, when he got to to London or to England, there was an advertisement for people that needed to know how to ride horses. I think the interesting thing is he didn't, it wasn't a stunt job. He just found himself becoming uh, involved in a profession that was quickly going to turn into stunt work yeah because he could ride horses that was that was it and he was interested in acting not in stunt work but you just take any opportunity you can get and clearly that's what he did and he built on it and so he eventually in 1970 but remember he got there in 64 so it was a long journey to finding his way he got a job touring with a stage production of hair okay which is a pretty big break. It was very popular. And he toured for nine months. And then he did a nine-month stint with the show in London, like set in one place. Oh, okay. That's interesting. That makes sense because in 71, he was still working on hair. And he actually met an actress uh, that was in the cast as well. Mm-hmm. Her name was Kimmy Wong. And they hit it off really very quickly. I mean, like massively fast because they started seeing each other and then they were already married that same year. Wow. And they hooked up. And what's interesting is because they both had theatrical backgrounds, at some point during this time, I'm not sure when, I would imagine the late 60s, Richard O'Brien did go like get classical training and all that. I mean, he was taught in theater. It was just pretty brief. So these people were very well trained. They also had really good voices. And Richard O'Brien's passion from a very early age was songwriting. He really loved playing guitar and writing songs. Mm -hmm. So when he met and then married Kimmy, they got this idea to start a little duo, a little pop band together. Yes. And they did called Kimmy and Ritz. And man, they're really cool. They put out, I don't know, maybe five or six singles. Yeah. And this is right during that time of being in the production of Hair. Mm -hmm. I was listening to it. It's pretty good. I'm going to play you a song right now from one of their singles. This single was called, I was in love with Danny, but the crowd was in love with Dean. (laughs) It's great. Here you go. They drove their hot rods into hell and back. And as a matter of fact, you couldn't get a razor blade between. Their wheels as they came around the corner. So this was really an interesting time. You know, he's he's just finding his way through the theater. Actually, he's doing pretty well because Hair was a very successful show already, a theatrical run. Mm-hmm. And from there, he got a job working on Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, so mm-hmm. he was jumping from one right to the next. Things were looking pretty good for him, except he is... Definitely, like we said, an eccentric person with with big ideas. Yes. And I think as the story goes, it's been told a couple different ways, 
kind of had creative differences on how he should be playing his character on Jesus Christ Superstar and was let go. So he was (laughs) now out of work and he also now had a young son. Yep. Because he and Kimmy had a child. So here he is, an unemployed actor with a young child in London, and he started to question everything. As you do. And he thought, you know, maybe it's time to pack up my bags, call it a day on acting, and just move back to New Zealand, you know, just raise a family there. Mm -hmm. He spoke in one interview saying he didn't want to be a selfish person that was putting himself before his child. He had all these new things that he had to consider. But as he was as preparing to go back to New Zealand, somebody, I don't remember who it was, approached him about coming over to the EMI Christmas party that they were having, which was this, you know, big to do party. And they wanted a little entertainment for the night. And Richard being quite the entertainer, they thought, why don't you just come do something? And he asked what? And they said, you know, 15, 20 minutes, just play a couple songs or just entertain the crowd. How crazy to have such a big personality that people are like, I don't really care what you do. Just do, just go ahead and do whatever it is you're going to do because it will undoubtedly be entertaining. I like that he was getting the go-to. Like, we need somebody <laughs> that'll entertain. Oh, I know who. <laughs> you know? So he took, he took that little job and he told himself prior to... I'm going to use this as a test. And basically, if this little gig goes over well, then maybe I should be doing, you know, entertainment. If it just bombs, this is a clear sign that I need to be over and done with. He wrote a few jokes out, but most importantly, he wanted to write a song or two. And knowing that these were kind of film people and music people, he thought it would be funny to write a little song about B-movies and sci-fi and horror so he wrote a song called Science Fiction Double Feature, mm-hmm. and he played it. Obviously, it went over pretty well that night, I'm assuming. And that is where the seed was sown for the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah. Because right after that, and I'm assuming because of the response he got from it, he thought, man, this would be really cool to develop into a musical performance, a play, a production. Yeah. This is what's interesting about how fate works out (laughs) and the stars align is that the director of Jesus Christ Superstar was a guy named Jim Sharman, who would become linked for a long time with him. Yeah. Jim Sharman, after Jesus Christ Superstar, was working on this play called The Unseen Hand, and Richard O'Brien was cast in it. Also working on that production was a musical director named Richard Hartley. And one day... Richard O'Brien came up to both of them and said, I've been kind of kicking around this idea of a, of a, mu- a musical. Mm-hmm. He handed them a demo tape. They all sat down and listened to it. He played a couple songs on his acoustic guitar and they were sold. And within no time, the Rocky Horror Show was born. Wow. We are not going to get into all of the details because that's what our other episode was for. But needless to say, if you have not seen it, uh, it took the world by storm, but it started in London Right when it opened, it was an immediate success. And then by the end of that year, sold out performances, considered the best play in all of London. It was winning awards. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was such a huge hit that this guy, Lou Adler, who was a record exec from the U.S., saw it and got the rights to bring it over to the U.S. So also an abbreviated version of this story. It did a run at the Roxy in L.A., massive success. Then it did a little run on Broadway, 
And then it became a feature film in 1975 called The Rocky Horror Picture Show. It is a phenomenon, and I can't even put it into words, but I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Yes, and have probably been deeply impacted by it in some way or another. Yeah. So Richard O'Brien went from random bit part kind of brushes with success in the theater. But also on the edge of, like, giving it all up. Absolutely. To, it is, I would say, safe to say an overnight success because... Nobody saw this coming. And keep yeah. in mind, the Rocky Horror Show opened as a play in 73. And by 75, it was a film, got a slow start, but within six months, it became the midnight movie go-to and became basically the most successful midnight movie musical cult film you can think of in existence. And it... Yeah. It catapulted him into the limelight. Yeah, and the longest running movie ever. Like, ever. Yeah, showing. There's the still a place. We covered it. I can't remember. I think it was somewhere in Germany. Yeah. Is has been playing it weekly since the seventies. And that is how Richard O'Brien's name became the toast of the town. And with that, boy, you know, opportunity is going to open up, right? Right. So while there is a lot of opportunity, he is a square peg. And so it was difficult to find a place where he fit, Mm -hmm. you know, for his very specific niche. You know, he spoke to a specific culture, type of people, all of that. And I think it was hard maybe to find the right avenue to use his skills but with that said there was no shortage of opportunity he continued writing musicals with richard hartley uh he wrote something called t period z so tz which opened in 76 it had a 38 performance run i couldn't find any like clips of it to watch so I could get a flavor of it but I did read up that it was a morality tale set in LA and it had like a neon vibe oh that's cool it's interesting that him and uh Richard Hartley just immediately struck up this relationship that started with Rocky Horror and then continued on for years and years absolutely but it's neat that they didn't waste any time if this is 76 yeah I mean Rocky Horror is still just taken off at this point yeah and it seemed to have some of the same ideas as rocky horror but it lacked the magic that you know all of the ingredients were just exactly right for rocky horror picture show and i would say that tz just didn't quite have it he also did a play called disaster which came out in 78 and in 1980 he didn't write or have anything to do with it he just was in flash gordon so he was having a successful career yeah one of the i would say that one of the standout films he was in for me personally was in 1978 it was this very strange kind of art house punk film called jubilee right you Uh, just watched that yeah it's so incredibly cool so the the premise is that Queen Elizabeth I has a this occultist who's played by Richard O'Brien oh. <laughs> have her uh, time travel into the future, and she ends up in 1970s punk London, 
And it follows these groups of punks around. And it's just this really dystopian kind of world. Interesting. Very telling of the times. It had a lot of critics at the time that were in the punk scene being like, you're just painting us as horrible people. But at the same time, it became an instant cult classic because it did feel very real. It's very gritty. Mm -hmm. I loved it. But what I loved most about it was the cast and the music and stuff like that. There's a performance from, you know, Susie and the Banshees, all kinds of bands. Oh, that's cool. Brian Eno does the score. No big deal. The coolest thing is that two of the leads that are a couple in it, one of them is uh, the the debut of Adamant. He's a oh. young musician in the film. Okay. And his girlfriend, this punk in there, is Nell Campbell, who mm. you would know from the Rocky Horror Picture Show as Columbia, who is too cool for school she is a totally different character in jubilee and i loved her but she's just this punk chick and looks nothing like columbia i'll tell you that well yeah that girl we'll get around to it but she can she can do some stuff with her look yeah she's definitely a bit of a chameleon but if you haven't seen it and you're into late 70s early 80s you know punk films Jubilee is a must. That's really interesting, too, that he took on the topic of the monarchy because he did mention that living in New Zealand helped him to um, get away from the pull of the monarchy that I I guess influences people who are from England. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, that is way beyond our understanding. (laughs) I just don't get it at all. But I think that helped him. So it's interesting that he kind of explored that in some way. So speaking of 78, when Jubilee came out, this is also the time in which he started contemplating the idea of a follow-up to Rocky Horror Picture Show, because why wouldn't you? I mean, Yeah, cash out. By 78, it was a worldwide phenomenon. Like, it now had theatrical runs and stage performances going in multiple countries around the world. I mean, it took off crazy fast. How hard is that? Think about it, though. Like, you've made something amazing. And, and, you know, we're maybe more experienced with this in the 21st century. But that desire for a follow-up, because there's such, such a strong demand. Like, think about something simple like Stranger Things. People immediately wanted season two and season three. And then you just squeeze all of the magic out of it and it's dead. So there is that fear. Like, why can't it just stand alone? Why do you need more? Yeah, that is interesting. But he did start toying with some ideas. Mm -hmm. And early on, he pitched it to the producer, Michael White, who was the producer of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because obviously, if it went on to make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars... (laughs) it's a safe bet that you should at least give this guy another try. Yeah. And originally the plot for the follow-up to Rocky Horror was a true sequel. It had, I don't know if you've ever read up on this, but it's really funny. So Frankenfurter and Rocky are resurrected back from the dead. Oh. Uh, Dr. Scott and Brad are in a relationship. And Janet is expecting her child from Dr. Frankenfurter. And that's it. basically uh, Magenta and Riff Raff come back and, and try and stop him again. Oh, my goodness. That was the original plan. What put an immediate stop on all of this was one person. Take a wild guess. Oh, uh, Tim Curry? Tim Curry. He wanted no part of bringing that character back. And for good reason. Since 1973, yeah. he had been doing constant shows of it. Yeah, He also had been in the productions that came stateside, too. So, I mean, 
This guy was totally burnt out at this point on that well, character. And not only that, like, you don't want that to be your full identity. I would say most people would just be like, I got to do something else. I am more than just this character. Yeah. And so I totally understand it. But Absolutely. what that did was that made Richard O'Brien go, okay, well, then it, if we can't have Tim, then that's a no go. Mm-hmm. How can we take characters from the film and maybe do a spinoff in a way? Mm-hmm. So it's not really a sequel. It's more of like a continued adventure. And that's what shifted by 1982. What was the working title was the Brad and Janet show. Oh. And that's what it was going to be called. He approached Jim Sharman, who was not only the director for all of the theatrical performances of the Rocky Horror Show, but also directed the Rocky Horror Picture Show to direct this new film. And he was like, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So he was slowly trying to kind of get the crew, the old gang back together from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So Jim was on board. And then another thing happened, and that is they wanted to shoot it all in Denton, Texas, (laughs) you know, where the original (laughs) takes place. And in 1980, the Screenwriters Guild had a strike, and that meant they couldn't shoot in Texas. They had to go over to England and shoot on a soundstage, and that's where the idea of, well, what if we just reworked the script entirely to take place totally inside of of a TV studio Mm -hmm. instead of anywhere else? And with that, that's where we got kind of the modern take on what we're going to be talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. Before we get into the film, I think people will be confused as to, is it a sequel? Is it not a sequel? Because Brad and Janet are in it. Yeah. I found a clip uh, from, boy, I think back in the 80s, where Richard O'Brien discusses, yeah, I think this was like 82, addresses this. Is okay. it a sequel? Is it not a sequel? And here's what he had to say. It's not really, no. It's, it's really further adventures of Brad and Janet. Yeah. But it's not really, it doesn't, if you've never seen Rocky Horror... You don't have to, to yeah. know anything about There's no reference to, to the previous movie at all. Hopefully it's a film that just stands up on its own. And uh, basically, Brad and Janet become, become our, our Gulliver. That's the way I look at it. It's like further adventures of Gulliver, further yeah. travels of Gulliver. And we just put them under the microscope once again and, and see how they react. All right. So this isn't exactly a sequel. As we've just learned, at least in the strictest sense of the word, although we will see many familiar faces and characters. Yes. So you just kind of have to accept and don't just chill out, man. (laughs) (laughs) Just chill out. Yeah, you just accept it for its own film, its own freestanding film, and it's quite a ride. Oh, it's great. Actually, I was writing or I was talking with my best friend about it. And I, she was like, I had no idea there was a sequel to Rocky Horror. How is it? Oh, my gosh. Tell me more. And my answer was, you know, it's if you hold it up to Rocky Horror, you're going to be disappointed mm-hmm. because you've made Rocky Horror too, pre- too precious. Yeah. But if you stumbled upon this as a standalone, it knock your socks off. It's great. So just watch as, watch it as its own experience and, you know, chill out. Yeah, I really like this idea, though. It's very similar to kind of comic book movies or, you know, in my, I guess if we were to make it more relevant today, something like The Mandalorian, where it's, it's uh, stories within the same universe, but it's not a direct sequel, yeah. you know, or Rogue One or whatever, if you're a Star Wars fan. So there can be these standalone stories. And I liked that idea. That they just kind of sidestepped. And instead of making a direct sequel, 
went this route. Although with that, there's a couple issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. To give you a general sense of what happens in shock treatment, we actually catch up with Brad and Janet from Rocky Horror Picture Show. But it's important to note that Brad and Janet are played by different characters. Yes, this is huge. This is where you need to chill out, guys. We don't have (laughs) Tim Curry. Um, Barry Bostwick is who we remember from the, the film Rocky Horror Picture Show playing Brad. But in Shock Treatment, it is played by Cliff DeYoung. You will recognize Cliff DeYoung from the beloved movie The Craft. He plays the dad, (laughs) Mr. Bailey. That's right. (laughs) There's an interesting story with the casting of Brad, actually. Because, yeah, yeah, even though Barry Boswick, he was caught up in another film. It's not that he didn't want to do it. He just was obligated to another one. You know who they turned to? Who? Take a wild guess. Steve Martin. Tim Curry. <gasps> what? Yeah, they wanted him to play Brad and Farley because you'll know that he plays two characters. And Tim said no because he felt that he couldn't do an American accent. Yeah. So he turned it down. And how Cliff got cast is actually interesting. Jim Sharman, the director. Okay. Cliff was who he wanted to have be Brad in the original Rocky Horror Picture Show. Whoa. So he went back to him and he was available and he was like, great, then I'm going to get you in this film. That's interesting. And, you know, if you look at this as a bigger picture, we have to remember Rocky Horror Picture Show or just the Rocky Horror Show itself had many different casts. Mm -hmm. So I think the people making this maybe weren't as attached or as rigidly fixed on the characters as the audience who had watched just the Rocky Horror Picture Show movie were. Yes. So that's something to keep in mind as you consider this. Now we have to touch on Janet. Janet is no longer played by Susan Sarandon. (laughs) You can calm down. It's okay. It's going to be okay. It's because... her fault, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, she just flat out wanted a lot of money. She was up and coming now. Yeah. Keep in mind, Rocky Horror Picture Show was her second film. But now, flash forward, you know, what What are we? We were at 75, now we're at 81. Mm-hmm. Already in that short amount of time, she was a hot ticket yep. and wanted a lot of money. And Richard O'Brien just flat out, they just could not afford her. Yeah. Yeah. So guess what you do? You recast. Get over it. They did. And (laughs) instead of Susan Sarandon, they hired Jessica Harper. You know, Jessica Harper. You'll recognize her from Suspiria. Oh, yeah. You'll recognize her from Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Jessica Harper is awesome. I mean, if... Yes, this is a little strange because she couldn't be more opposite from Susan Sarandon. Yeah, you'll remember that if you've seen Phantom of the Paradise, she has a like really rich, very resonant voice. Oh, yeah, she can sing. Yeah, and Susan Sarandon has a high like sparrow kind of voice. It's very, 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 very different. I saw somebody in a, in a review wrote this as the David Lynch move where they, she's basically been altered to a different version. It's like a Lost Highway thing (laughs) (laughs) where this is her other version. Absolutely. I I definitely see that. So Brad and Janet are now married and the entire movie is set in Denton, Texas, uh, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. The entire town is run by like a food distribution company called Farley Flavors. And... You got to wrap your mind around this. The entire town is inside of a TV studio, and you've already explained why it's there. It's 
uh, so an entire community is in a TV studio, which, I mean, that's fun to think about, uh, you know, the bigger picture of what they're saying about our culture. But this TV studio is called DTV Network. Everyone in the town is either on the TV show or in the audience, which, oh my gosh, 21st century, like, are you an influencer or are you being influenced? It's just exactly that. This is interesting. We're going to put a pin in this till the very end. Okay. But, but everybody listening, keep that in the back of your mind of the insane concept that this film is starting out with. Yeah. So every, in 1981. Everyone in Denton, Texas is in the show or in the audience. Remember that. Brad and Janet are pulled from the audience to be on a show called Marriage Maze, which is hosted by a character called Bert Schnick, who is played by Barry Humphreys, who you might know as Dame Edna. This character is interesting because it wasn't originally this character. Oh, yeah? Dr. Scott from the Rocky Horror Picture Show was supposed to be in it. Oh. And he passed, so they just converted that character kind of over into a new character speaking of lost highway can we take a moment to describe what this character looks like yeah wow so he has like a greasy bob and he pretends to be blind for a while got shades on and then pure white face he seriously looks like the older brother of the weird guy with the camera from lost highway yeah it's bonkers absolutely creepy Totally weird. Within this Marriage Maze show, Brad and Janet, it is revealed, have some marriage problems. And it ends with Brad being institutionalized. But remember, it's still within the TV studio. So he's taken there. It's also a show. It's sort of like a uh, like a soap opera show that he is now part of. And but it's, it's all a, like reality TV. Yeah, it's, it's really strange. Very, very difficult to to <laughs> describe. <laughs> but this institution that Brad is put into is run by a sibling combo uh, named Cosmo and Nation McKinley, a boy and a girl. You will know them as Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn, who played Riff Raff and Magenta in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes, yeah, so who were also siblings in that one, yes. which is going to confuse audiences even further, but these are not the same characters. No. Also, when we were try- saying that it was kind of difficult to describe this film in general, uh-huh. I listened to several interviews with Patricia Quinn, uh-huh. who I love, by the way. She is delightful. She turned up recently. We watched... Okay, we're not big fans of Rob Zombie, but everybody kept saying, like, try Lords of Salem, because that's different. Honestly, I really did like it. I thought it was a cool movie. It doesn't feel like a Rob Zombie movie, but she is in it and she has a bit part oh, and yeah. she steals the show when I she shows up. It's pretty big. Yeah. I wouldn't say a bit part. Yeah I, yeah, I guess I mean, but I just, man, you know her. When she's there, she's there. And, oh, yeah. Oh, she's so great. But I was listening to an interview with her talking about shock treatment uh-huh. and she said she did not have a clue what the film was about. She just was like along for the ride. <laughs> But that the concept was so over everybody's head at that time, which is funny because now we can kind of grasp that. It makes that. more sense. But yeah. at that time, people, you know, she just was like, sure, okay, cool. 
Yeah, I could see that. And I kind of, you get a sense that the cast doesn't quite understand what they're doing. (laughs) They're just there. Yeah. She's so wonderful. She is. And another familiar face, another wonderful familiar face is a sexy nurse who, if you watch this, you would not know that it is Columbia, also played by Nell Campbell from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) So in Rocky Horror Picture Show... Uh, Columbia is the one who tap dances. She has the little red bob. She looks as she looks. She's got shaved eyebrows. And in this, she's like a sexy bombshell nurse. Yeah. And it it, it boggles the mind to, I don't know, somehow make the two meet. But it it is true. It is her. And when she sings in, in this, you'll go, oh, okay. Yeah, you notice it when she sings, but otherwise she's like, Massive babe in this and not Columbia. I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting indeed. Janet now is pulled into the show also when the CEO of Farley Foods turns her into a singing pop star just overnight. They just put some clothes on her and now she's a pop star and the audience responds to her, whereas the day before she had been in the audience. And he's trying to make her into a sensation in order to steal her away from Brad. She's also being drugged and all of these things. Yeah, this would be a good time to maybe play a little clip because keep in mind this is a musical. Mm -hmm. You are going to hear similarities to Rocky Horror Picture Show, but the transformation has a great number with her, with, with Jessica and Richard O'Brien called Little Black Dress. Yeah. And it's kind of a standout track. So it's fun just to give you a sense of the the feel of the film. Here's a little clip from there. That's me. All right. Eventually, we learn that Farley is actually the long-lost twin brother of Brad. (laughs) Yeah. And a twist. And there are some sleuths on the loose named Betty Hapshat, who's played by Ruby Wax, and Oliver Wright, who's played by Charles Gray, who you will remember is the narrator from Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they figure out the plot. They rescue Brad and Janet. It's a whole thing. But that's basically what happens in a nutshell in this in this movie. Yeah, it's funny, too, that um, you said, you know, he was from Rocky Horror also. There's one other person involved that was interesting. The police officer in the film is Christopher Malcolm, who was the original Brad in the stage production in uh-huh. London. So he got a little part, too, which is yeah. cool. It's just, you know, everybody came together. I like that a lot. You know, one of the things about this film, you know, that's the kind of overview. But what can't be overstated is the look of the film. It's very much a cult film. It's very much an art house, kind of weird, eccentric film. Feels very like Dr. Caligari-esque. Absolutely. And if you don't know Dr. Caligari, you can go back and listen to our episode. It's a, a movie that we really love. It's a hyper stylized kind of stage production film. Mm-hmm. And what I found interesting was the guy, Dame Edna's character, Bert Snick, he said that to get into that character, he channeled Dr. Caligari. And I oh. think that's really interesting because his character feels like it would be out of the 89 movie, Dr. Caligari. And the production looks like it too. Yeah. So I think if you're a fan of that film, which if you saw it, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. You might like this too. And why I say that is that 
there are divided groups with this film. And if you just stumbled across this, not only the music is interesting, but the look of it is just so much fun. It's really slick. You definitely can get that theater background. It's very much a theater feel because yeah. they're all being shot in one studio. Yep. So all these things are being moved around. The colors, all these great neon colors and, and the costume designs are great yeah. and stuff. But the music really is, it's its a musical. It's you know? fantastic. It's a rock musical. Okay, there's a couple issues with the with the music. One is, again, if you're comparing it to Rocky Horror, you're going up against a titan because not only is it ingrained in your brain, it's also not glam rock. It's kind of like this 80s transitional, not yeah. quite new wave, but yeah. I think watching this, I wonder what it would be like for somebody who's never seen Rocky Horror, if they would just kind of accept this a little bit more openly yeah. than the diehard fans who were expecting a direct sequel. Yeah, it's in no way a direct sequel, but I love this movie. It's so great. It's so creative. The music is awesome. Um, I just, I have no complaints, no notes. It's good. The music is incredible, and it was released on vinyl and cassette. It did have a, an official soundtrack was put out by Ode Records, which, funny enough, is owned by Lou Adler, who was the producer. Oh. Remember, it goes back yeah, to yeah. the guy responsible for bringing Rocky Horror over to the United States wow. in the first place. There were some standout tracks, like the lead that we played at the beginning, Shock Treatment, Little Black Dress. I mean, there's a bunch. But I have to say, the song that's, I mean, just gets me every time, as a film composer myself, and as just a normal musician that puts out albums... Sometimes you hear a song and you go, damn, like, I wish I wrote that song. Yeah. This song that I'm about to play you, not only is it incredible, but the scene in which it plays is probably my favorite scene in the entire film. Oh, yes. And I found out it was all done in a single shot. Yeah, I believe that. But it's basically everybody getting ready to go to bed. And keep in mind, because this is all, this whole town lives within a TV station, all the rooms are also in the TV station. And the, the camera shot is from the outside of a building, just panning left to right, looking into the window of all these main characters getting ready for bed as they sing this song mm -hmm. called Lullaby. I feel the heat from your skin and the stubble on your chin. This song is incredible. It's, it's great. such a great song. The shot is great. Absolutely. You know what that shot reminds me of, too? Once you guys watch it, you'll know. That massive attack video yes. where they're going in mm -hmm. and out, you know, alongside the outside of, a, of an apartment building. Yep. 
Absolutely. And the colors are so rich, that blue color yep. that comes in. We'll put this on our Instagram for sure. This yeah. is my favorite shot in the yeah. whole film. Another thing we need to mention, too, is that he addresses a lot of the same gender issues in, in new ways, I would say. But that's something that Richard O'Brien has threaded throughout his career. So I, th- I think that I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention that that is an important part of this film. Yeah, and, you know, this is shock treatment, and this is a really interesting film. I strongly recommend it. However, we're not stopping at shock treatment because no. this is the history of Richard O'Brien as well. Can't stop, won't stop. We just got to talk about shock treatment because it was an 80s film. Yeah. <laughs> However. He's our gateway, or it's our gateway. Yeah, the enigma and the eccentric wonderfulness of Richard O'Brien continued in full force beyond shock treatment. Needless to say, it was a total flop when it came out. So what do you do? Like, you had this success beyond anybody's wildest imaginations. You try and follow it up, and it just it just flops hard. I oh. uh, He could have just stopped right there. Yeah. He didn't. And we're going to get into what he did right after. However, let's take a minute to talk about why. Like, why would this not have worked? Because it was ahead of its time. There's a couple reasons. One, yeah, Tim Curry wasn't in it. Susan Sarandon wasn't in it. And everybody was expecting a follow-up to Rocky Horror. And to their fault, it was kind of pitched that way. Yeah. And so it's confusing. It doesn't have the right cast. But ultimately, and what's been dis- kind of discussed as years have gone on, and it's grown in cult status, is that, as you mentioned, it was so far ahead of its time this, I mean, 20 years before reality TV had taken off. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially just reality TV of people living and being entertainment for others in real life. And I think nobody knew how to even process what they were watching. Yeah. This can be seen in a lot of criticisms of the time. You know, I think it was uh, maybe Ebert that said it. He you know, panned it right away. He was like, this is just a mess. This isn't working at all. And then years later, looked back and he said, whoa, like, <laughs> I was wrong. They didn't realize what they were saying. You know, mm. this is really kind of fascinating, actually. And I think it's interesting to see how that developed in, in pop culture, because there's a very well-known story of Patricia Quinn in later interviews saying that when the Truman Show with Jim Carrey came out, she got a call from Richard O'Brien and said, I think they stole my idea. (gasps) And nobody knew what he was talking about. I like to think that they were still friends that far on, too. They're calling each other up. I love that. But he was confused because this really was that idea early on. The problem is it was 10 plus years way before. Mm -hmm. When did the Truman Show even come out? The 90s? It was in the 90s. So maybe late 90s. That was a major problem. And I think now it ages really well because we now can watch it and go, yeah, that's believable. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody's entertainment for everybody else in their real life. But that really worked against them when it came out. So it does suck. This was a huge flop. And I think anybody else or most people would have maybe tucked their tail and said, "Okay, you know, maybe I'm done now. But Richard O'Brien didn't. He, He had a. He was just not even the slightest concerned with this. Well, and after shock treatment, it was still only right at the beginning of the 1980s. He had so much more to do. He continued to write musicals. And honestly, I'm not going to take you through it because there is 
so much that he did. You can go look up his IMDb credits. You can go read his bio. It's bonkers. He wrote in 1982, The Stripper, which was based on a novel by Carter Brown. In 1984, he wrote Top People. He wrote songs for The Return of Captain Invincible in 1983. In 1985, he wrote a one-man show called Disgracefully Yours, and he played the title character Mephistopheles Smith. (laughs) Isn't that great? And, like, I'm just really super skimming it over he was in dark city do you remember that yeah totally and you know and the thing about him is we're not just listing off his resume no 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 i'm way glossing it over he's just such a fascinating character that i felt like nothing could slow him down artists gotta art they gotta art if maybe all of this is too weird for you he was an ever after in 1998 (laughs) Man, we should revisit Dark City now that you're speaking of that. I know. I was thinking the same thing. I haven't seen that in a long time. That Jennifer Connelly, right? Yeah. Okay. That was kind of her big return and everybody was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. She turned into an Uber babe. And then she did Requiem for a Dream. Whoa. I'm always like, I should watch that again. And then I'm like, I'm not ready. (laughs) It's sitting right there. (laughs) I I don't want to. It's so good, but it's so bad. All right. So... Let's just say he has an incredibly prolific career from for his whole life. He just doesn't stop working. But in 1990, he was on the popular UK game show called The Crystal Maze. Welcome, Richard O'Brien at your service, your majestic major domo to the Crystal Maze. Had I have known about this uh, when it came out, I would have been all over this thing. It's like a bulked up double dare or something way cooler. He is so fun in it, too. He's got these Mm -hmm. crazy outfits and he's running around. He's kind of sarcastic, like just ever so slightly mean, but also encouraging and positive. He's just such a character. And you know what's crazy is a lot of people know him as this. They didn't even know he was part of the Rocky Horror Show. Right. Absolutely. And I guess he, I didn't see this in the samples we watched, but he played a harmonica randomly in the series as well. And he did several seasons of that. And then somebody else took over and basically it just kind of went down and faded away after that. Yeah, we watched an episode and man, was it fun. I I definitely could watch a lot more of that. (laughs) No, it's on YouTube. (laughs) It's a blast. Uh, He also, I should mention, worked uh, extensively in theater. This whole time he just continued to work in theater. So there's really no stopping him. And I have this week's fun fact. Oh, cool. In 2004, Hamilton City Council in New Zealand put up a riffraff statue. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And then in 2010, he was denied citizenship. (laughs) To New Zealand. Hold on. I want to I wanna look it up real quick and see what the riffraff statue looks like. Oh, I didn't. Yes. Oh, it's so much cooler than I thought it was going to be. Let me see. It's him at the end of the film with the ray gun. Oh. Oh, I thought I it was going to be him like the house. butler. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Okay. So he, he was a little <laughs> bit outspoken about how New Zealand will put up a big, you know, statue commemorating him as a 
a Kiwi, I guess. Well, it was his contributions to the art. They were really one of celebrating that he he was their, their output. Yeah. But he couldn't be a citizen. Yeah. And he did appeal their decision. And I guess their decision was due to age. I, I guess when you're old, you don't get to change countries. Yeah, New Zealand's <laughs> ageist, I think, is what we've learned in all this. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a fan it. outpour. Like, I guess people learned about it and they started getting a lot of people writing in being like, let the guy let him in. You let have a statue. Yeah. He raised sheep there 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but he was granted citizenship in 2011. We also need to briefly discuss his position on trans rights, because that has come up a lot in the media recently. Yeah, we haven't discussed his lifestyle or anything like that, but... And quite frankly, it's not a whole lot of our business. Yeah, it doesn't matter uh, at all. However, yeah, you know, everybody... You say anything and <laughs> it's <laughs> It's difficult waves. to know what is right or wrong to say. And he has in the in the past called himself 70% male, 30% female. He has also openly discussed using estrogen in the past. But in 2017, he took some heat when he made a statement that transgender women are not real women. Though he's obviously empathetic towards the trans community. So it's sort of a confusing statement to make. And in a recent interview with a Guardian, he said, I think anybody who decides to take the huge step with a sex change deserves encouragement and a thumbs up. As long as they're happy and fulfilled, I applaud them to my very last day. And then he says, but you can't become a natural woman. So it is kind of... It's complicated. Yeah, I mean, you have to acknowledge that because he has been in the media for that in recent uh, years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's a, he's a fascinating character. He's done a lot. He's offered a lot. I think that there is really nobody else like him in this world. No. That's difficult to find. He's impossible to uh, mistake with anybody else. I think that he forged his path on his own terms. And this is really a bizarre story of just an eccentric person making his own way in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that uh, he is incredibly creative, like to his very marrow, one of those true artists that you are or we as humans are privileged to witness, you know, a, a handful in a lifetime. He's very, very creative, very influential. And, you know, he comes from a very specific time and place. Yeah. And ultimately, even if you love Rocky Horror, the point of this is to say, uh, there's so much more out there. Mm -hmm. And shock treatment, as we mentioned earlier, if you weren't expecting something very specific with very specific people involved, and you just stumbled across this, excellent film. Your shoes would shoot off into the stratosphere because <laughs> they'd be blown off. Because so, it's good. Yeah. I look into the life of, of Richard O'Brien, you know, even put out an album and stuff too, but give this film a try. This is uh, definitely laser grave to prove. You yeah. know, we have a love-hate relationship with musicals. They have to be a very, very specific type of musical. However, this fits the mold perfectly. Absolutely. And as much as we give grief to theater folk, when <laughs> we find a weird theater person, we will support them. Yeah, you got to be like on the fringe of society <laughs> <laughs> making weird avant-garde theater and we're all for it. Yeah. And that is Richard O'Brien 100%. Yep. Okay, everybody. Well, that is 
this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive on the life of a very interesting person. If you want to hear even more, you can go join our Patreon and listen to our Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, episode, as well as all of our back catalog. Yeah, you can find that at patreon.com slash lasergraves. If you want to listen to any of our back episodes, it's at lasergraves.com. You can also find us anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. So Amazon, Podbean, Spotify, all that good stuff, as well as finding us on Instagram at lasergraves. You can follow us. You can share us with friends. As always, please rate, review, subscribe. That, that helps, helps us out. If you want to follow us on our own personal sites, I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. Please support our fellow friends and podcasters, which we always share in our stories throughout the week. They are doing amazing stuff, too. And that is what we have for you. Uh, Until next time, have a good day. Thanks for listening. Beep.